Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Mattia Kovac, the co-founder and head of development at Taya Translations, a company that bridges the gap between language barriers with the help of AI and machine learning. As a remote team with team members in Asia, Europe, and the US, the Bear Metrics team was especially excited to talk with Mattia and pick his brain about building Taya. Enjoy. Hey, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's a great day so far. How about yourself? Awesome. Yeah, so far, so good. It's been, I, w- I always love talking about the weather a little bit at the beginning of a podcast because <laughs> it's like certain not to be relevant uh, when everybody's listening, but it's been uh, cold recently and it's warmed up and it was, we had kind of a, a foggy morning today, which I think is kind of a, it's a kind of a cool vibe to, <laughs> to start the day with. So yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a, in a cool spooky mood today, triggered by the, by the, by the weather. Yeah. Well, I, I live close to the Alps in Europe and it looks like it's about to snow again. So uh, we might get some snow through the night. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, when, the, when this episode comes out, we'll, we'll have to get an update whether or not it actually snowed. <laughs> I'm sure people are, people are dying to know. But yeah. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we move over to the topics that people are probably tuning in for? And just to get started, why don't you tell me where did your, where did your entrepreneurial journey get started? Oh, well, yeah. I've, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for about seven or eight years now, I think, but it originally, well, actually it started back in the day, back in the 90s when my my father started his first company and I saw how hard he was working and I said, well, I I think I'm never going to go down that path. It looks like a lot of hard work and and a lot of sleepless nights to be, you know, the the man of your own business. But I, I guess, you know, I guess you do the things that you say you won't do most. So eventually I ended up helping my sister set up her company. And then later on, when I was working in, in this multinational company, I realized that this isn't something where I see myself in the long term. So I started talking with a bunch of people in my social circle and seeing if there's anything else out there. You know, is it just the, the usual nine five, go to work, go home and, and, you know, waste your life away? Or is there something else? And one of my, my friends was uh, Marco, who we already briefly worked together earlier. And I really liked the way he was approaching his business. Like, I liked the team he had. I liked the way he had his things sorted out. So I called him up and I said, hey, there, if you will ever need someone you want to work with, why don't you let me know? And eventually he came back and he said, well, let's, let's open up a company together. Let's start a language school. And I said, well, there's so many language schools out there. Why would you want to build another one? And he said, look, I'm, I'm already running this other business that's also sort of a school. So I have classrooms, I have all these processes already set up, and I could help you with this. And on the other hand, you yourself, you're good with languages, and you're a professor by education. So I thought maybe you'd, you'd find this like a fun project. And if you look at you know how this business is run, nothing has changed in the last 20 years. Everyone's doing everything the same way they did it in the 90s. So I think we can do better. And I said, well, let's let's if we can and just for the start it was just like a hobby just a weekend project I remember one Saturday I was working on this and my back then girlfriend came in and she was like oh, what, what are you working on and, and I spent the entire weekend building the first website and so on and by the end of the next weekend I decided to quit my job and just go fully in, into into building this project and it's, uh, that's where it somehow all started about seven years ago something like that wow 
So you, you went from the mindset of, I never want to run my own business, and you kind of went down a different path. And then it almost feels like the the second you had the opportunity, you were like, yeah, I'm all in, like one weekend and I'm ready to go. Yeah, it like, was literally like two weekends or something like that. And I just got pulled in so much because I saw how much you can, if it's like, you know, if you do things your own way, if you do things however you want to do them. So being the, the master of your destiny, if you want to call it this way or something. So yeah, it was really, was really intriguing and uh, intoxicating. Yeah, it, it feels really fortunate that you, you had this this connection, someone that you, you knew that you were already interested in working with and feels you know kind of lucky that the idea that they had was an area that you had you know, professional, you had domain expertise in. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I owe a lot to Marco, and especially in these early days, he he taught me a lot. And yeah, if there's one thing I would give advice to to anyone who's just starting their business, really, really take a close look at your social circle and work on it. Try try to meet as many people as you can who might be relevant to your idea, or if you don't even have an idea, try to put people around you who you know that you can trust, or at least you feel you can trust. And learn from. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like it's um, especially over the past eighteen months, it's been really, really difficult to to meet new people. But I totally agree. I feel like my personal observation is I've seen like the people who have set out to like earlier in their careers. I, I guess it's actually it, it varies a lot, but it almost feels even more like the people who kind of set out to learn and meet people and kind of be helpful to others got to where they wanted to to get to a lot more quickly than the people who sort of had their eyes said like, well, I want to start a business and I don't know what it's going to do or I don't know who it's going to serve. I feel like that's a little bit of a harder road. Yeah, definitely is. Yeah. What advice would you give people to as they're, they're trying to build their network or what worked for you as like you were trying to meet people and you kind of expand those opportunities. If somebody feels like they don't have that network around them, like what would your advice be to, to, to get started on that? Out of the two of us, so Marco, my co-founder, Taya, and myself, I think we're, um, she's definitely the one with the way bigger social circle and social skills. So I'm, uh, I usually have this joke, I'm the one with the glasses in this tandem. So I'm good with computers and, and all that. And, and he's better with, uh, with at least with meeting people yeah, and, and, and expanding his social circle. So I, I don't think my advice would be very good, but there's all of these networks and all of this that you can go to and meet people there. And uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of the people I know I've met through through some of these occasions, there's conferences and all this traditional stuff that's going on in, in normal times. Now during COVID times, it's, it's definitely harder. But on the other hand, you have all these social networks these days, especially LinkedIn is extremely powerful as a tool. So you can literally narrow down through search and filter people who might be interesting for you to meet with. And if you reach out and if you're you know, approachable, you can definitely expand your social circle this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it certainly is like a, a harder time to like the events aren't, I, I guess they're coming back depending on where in the world you are. And so it is, it is definitely more challenging and different. But one, one of the other things I feel is that sometimes especially for me and other people I talk to, you know, it's kind of like the flip side of that coin is if you feel like you you don't have social skills or you're more introverted and you're going to feel awkward, you know, talking to people, 
now is like the perfect time because everybody feels awkward. <laughs> Everybody's rusty. You know, we people haven't been going to events. So it's like if you want to if you're concerned about feeling awkward going and, and talking to people, now's the perfect time to do it because everybody everybody feels that way. It's such a strange time. It's like like uh, you can kind of strike while the iron's hot and every you know all the wonderful extroverted people in our lives haven't you know been able to hone their skills so the, the introverts can kind of come out and you know at least you know, at least uh, you know hold up their side of the conversation a little bit. Yeah, I was I was just at the web summit a couple of weeks ago in in uh, Portugal, and there was about forty five thousand people at the conference. It was huge, and uh, you you would be amazed to see how how excited people were to actually meet with other people live in real time in the same place. Like it was, they were the first day. Everyone was just like giddy, you know, from excitement because it was so unnatural after all these months of being locked in in your own home. <laughs> it's a weird experience. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you no longer need to be the most interesting person in the world. Just being a physical, corporeal human being <laughs> yeah. in the same physical space. People are like, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Happy to find a human connection with someone finally. Cool. Well, so you mentioned that you, you were a, a language professor. Is that right? Is that where you, is that what you did your study on in school? Well, yeah, in, at university, I, I studied Chinese studies, but I also speak uh, a couple languages, which, I mean, I come from a very small country in Europe, and it's kind of normal for us to, to learn languages at a very early age. So I started with English, obviously. Um, my native language is Slovenian, but then in school, I also learned German, and then Italian, and Slovenians like to go to Croatia, to the seaside, and so we all speak a bit of Croatian as well. But then at university, I decided to take Chinese as my major. And aside from that, I, I studied some other uh, stuff as well. So I actually have a couple degrees. One of them is I'm also a teacher. So yeah, I've, I'm very much into teaching. And this is also, I guess, my leadership style as a, as a CEO or right now as a CTO. I like to work with my team in a way that I'm more of their mentor than their, you know, classical old school director. So yeah, it's a bit different, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you do you feel like that's kind of your just a natural tendency that you have, or is that something that you've cultivated to be a little bit more of a coach and less of like a kind of like a more of a top down? Yeah, know, I think I think it's much more natural. Director? Yeah, it's, it's much more natural to me because I, I've never liked autocracy, you know, like people just uh, bossing you around. And I think a lot of people in my generation are just not comfortable with it anymore. You know, back in the 50s or earlier, maybe it was more natural for people to be used to being bossed around. People of this day and age, they, they're more used to taking, uh, to making their own decisions and, and just, you know, being guided along the way is much more beneficial to everyone. So to me, it's, it's the, the only leadership style that I can actually do, you know, because uh, if I try to be very autocratic, it's not going to come across as realistic. It's going to come across as phony and no one's going to take me seriously. So I just have to avoid that approach and, and stick with what I know. So yeah, it's being a mentor or a coach. That's great. I think that it certainly makes sense coming from the kind of professor world. And I don't, actually it's true or not, not necessarily true. Cause I feel like I do know I've known professors that are very, like very demanding and you know, kind of like yell at you for not understanding, but I, I never did very well with those professors. So I think the, the, 
the sim- a similar style works in that field too of, well, let me kind of coach you through and understand like, well, I'm not going to yell at you or make fun of you for not understanding something. I just need to understand why it is that you don't understand it. And then once we understand that, then we can like, it's just, it's like us, it's, it's that style of like, it's us against the problem versus like me versus you. And like my task is to get you to do the thing at any cost. Yeah, and it's, it's also part of the psychological safety, you know, where you try to help people with their problems. And instead of just pointing out, hey, you have a problem, uh, you, what are you going to do about it? It's like, well, how, how can I help you to get across this problem? And even if you fail, even if you don't understand, it's okay. We're in this together. I'm here to help you. What I say a lot of times to people who are new to the company, I tell them, look, don't don't be afraid to ask. I know you all of your life you've been told to shut up and and just listen and do what you're told. This isn't school anymore. You know, you're you're not uh, supposed to be quiet. You're not supposed to shut up. You're supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to give ideas and contribute to the whole uh, whatever it is that we're building. And if you're if you're not, you're actually you know in the way of everyone else who's trying to build something better so what i what i tell my my you know, i'll call them staff but they're actually my team my people i usually tell them my job is to remove any obstacles in your way in order for you to be able to do your job and not to tell you what you need to do you're the one who needs to tell me what you're going to do in order to to get us where we need to get going right that's a that's a trend that i've heard pretty regular in, in chatting with people on this on this podcast of trying to figure out how you can basically like get the most out of your team by making sure that they feel comfortable taking on projects and uh, making recommendations and suggestions so that it's not, you know, if it's, if it's a true top down approach, then you run into this, the issue of it's like, well, that person, whoever's making that top down strategy has to be basically perfect. Like you have to, you have to be sort of like all knowing and you have to really like account for, and you have to like really like, be like a tremendous planner to understand like what's going to happen at every single step along the way versus if you can if you can engage the team and then have you know make sure people feel empowered that as they're progressing forward to achieve their goals which hopefully are aligned with the goals of the company which is maybe a separate topic but if they you know if they they're running into walls like they they have to find some way to solve those or, or feel empowered to, to solve those issues so that they can actually be successful. Because otherwise, if they don't feel empowered in that way, then they're just, when you go to review your goals, they're just going to come back and say like, well, yeah, sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't hit this goal because of this reason. And then you'd be like, well, why didn't you just solve that, solve that problem? They're like, oh, well, I didn't, didn't think it was my job or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's whatever not in my domain or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there, there's two two sides of this. I mean, on the one hand, it's what we we were just mentioning now. People need to feel empowered. People need to feel like they're in control of what they do and that they're included in the decision making process, at least, at least to some extent, of course. But on the on the other hand, it's also completely unscalable if you think that you will be managing everything as let's say a CEO or co-founder or whatever you are and that everyone's going to report back to you so very early on you're going to have to start working on setting up middle management and going into a classic corporation style which in in my opinion is not something that a lot of people in this day and age want to be a part of actually so it's I think especially after COVID but even sooner things have changed a lot like now if you want to attract 
talent, like really, really talented people. And let's not let's not be fooling everyone. If you want to build an ex- exceptional startup, you you're going to need exceptional people. But if you want to attract exceptional people, it's no longer just you know fancy offices and and high salaries. It's also about how they can be included into whatever it is they're building and be a part of the vision that you that you promote. So it's it's much more complex these days, especially now when it's so much harder to get good talent, you know, like especially developers and and other specialist specialist people because of the demand on the market. I don't know if you if you're aware of this, but it's never been harder to find a good engineer to work on your software problems than it is now. I don't think it has been in the last twenty or thirty years. So it's an exceptional time. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and it's it was sort of like when remote wasn't as wasn't as common, or at least it was it was common with smaller companies. I felt like having a remote position was a competitive advantage for startups because you know you can provide that additional flexibility and it increases your your talent pool. So the the really talented people who didn't want to move into a tech center to work at a big company, you would have an opportunity to work with them. But yeah, now it kind of feels like, I feel like the, <laughs> I, I kind of had this this feeling like everybody was sort of celebrating the fact that everybody was moving to remote and was excited for remote. And I don't think we took the the moment, the selfish moment to be like, oh, well, if every company in the world, including, you know, all the major, you know, tech giants are moving to primarily remote, well, now we're not just competing with the other startups, we're competing with yeah Yeah, exactly every everybody the entire limited suite right yeah that's that's actually i think something that's happening as well in the market how have you been thinking about competing in in that environment like what are you what are you doing to compete with the (laughs) the companies with infinite infinite resources yeah, that's that's exactly what yeah one of the the things that we we need to tackle through through company culture and values and and you know through all these approaches, so, but again, it's it's not something new. It's something that some companies have been experimenting with for for ages. Like even at Google, they've had back like ten or fifteen years ago. Even they already had a lot of autonomy with their staff, and sometimes it, it backfired tremendously. There's there's stories and stories of this. So yeah, the, it's it's a weird time to be able to attract talent. But I think somehow we're, we're, we're kind of managing it quite well. I really like the team we have currently, and I think we're looking into some ex- really exceptional times ahead of us when we'll be attracting even better talent and even more people to help us scale this company to its next stage. So it's, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of now in, in the, the process going from sort of a startup phase into a more scale-up phase, and that's uh, definitely a, a new era for us. That's great. I was kind of like take us back in in time a little bit. So as you were transitioning from your you know the kind of day job into into the company, it sounds like you right out the gate were responsible for a lot of the the technical side of the business. Is that is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I am more of a technical side of the company, as I mentioned. And well, the first company I started was was actually this language school, and the idea was to build a language school where a part of the class is is in person with a real teacher, but a part of the class is automated and is online so that you don't have to waste um, so much time being in class with other people, just doing some silly exercises and waiting for other people to finish. But you can actually do all the exercises on your own, fully automated, 
and well, our app was was there to help you. But when you you know when you're learning a new language, you really need to speak with a, a, a native speaker, a teacher who can who can guide you through the pronunciation and everything. And that is still very efficient if it's in person. But we, back in 2014 when we started, it you know a lot of the we we tried with video lessons, but you know, a lot of our clients just weren't too excited about remote lessons. Now it's entirely different. But while we were building that business, we we started selling a lot of language courses to to companies in the region, and in all of this, and a lot of these companies started asking us, "Well, we like how you do things. We like your team. Would you be willing to handle our localization services as well? So if you can translate this document or that website or something." And we we said, well, yeah, we'll figure it out. So we started figuring it out along the way and realized that there's this gap between what the market has to offer in terms of technology and what the localization services actually, or how the localization services actually look like. Probably for a lot of people in the States, it's kind of more um, difficult to relate to this. But in Europe, we have, I think, 27 official languages only inside the EU. And then there's all of these other languages and all of these other countries bordering the EU. So we really have to translate a lot of stuff a lot of times. And ordering translation services uh, a few years ago, even still, but still now, looks like you, you send an email to an LSP, a language service provider, and they take their dear time to reply back with the quotes. And then you have to confirm that quote. And then you have to ask them, when is this going to get delivered? And so on and so forth. So um, essentially... There's about 13 emails which are files inside being exchanged just before your project even gets worked on. And uh, your files are stored on, on computers of all these different freelancers working for these agencies. And it takes a bunch of um, manual management and handling for you to get your files translated. And we realized we can, we can build this better. We can, we can make an easy-to-use web platform where you just drag and drop your files just like you would in Dropbox or we transfer, for example, and get these files translated or, or at least get a quote for these files immediately, you know, analyze them automatically, give me back a quote, how much is this going to cost me, and then give me an option to decide what kind of quality I want, how fast I want to get this delivered. So we started pitching this idea around, we started building the demo, we got some funding, and then we moved full time to working on this company, which we now call Taya. So T-A-I-A, as in translations with AI assistance. And it's uh, been growing ever since. So now we're a team of 30, 32, something like that, all over Europe. We have our HQ in London. Some of our team is, is uh, still in Slovenia, where I come from originally. And then some of our team is also in other countries in Europe, like Spain and Cyprus. And we're still growing quite, quite fast these days. So yeah, that this was so. I, as, as I mentioned, I took on the role of uh, CTO in this company, whereas Marco, my co-founder, he took the role of CEO. So we kind of split the company between the two of us. So, well, not the company, but obligations and the things we need to do. So yeah, it's it's been a very exciting journey so far. Yeah, that's, that's great. And you, you kind of like skipped over it, but it sounds like you were able to raise funding sort of right in stride as you were you were rolling it out. What was that experience like? Oh, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I wouldn't want to, you know, lift hopes to anyone who's just on, on the beginning of their of their startup path. But when you're just starting out, it's really hard to raise funds if you have nothing to show for it. 
we weren't able to build the entire platform in order to show how it's going to work. And we only had like mock-ups, screenshots, and, and then it's still that didn't really help us a lot. But one of the major issues was that we were only pitching to local investors in Central Europe, which I think was a major mistake. We should have gone to at least the UK, if not the US already in the start. But then when, one day I just took some time off and I built the first demo to show how it's going to actually look like. And then with that demo, we were able to showcase a bit better and we got our first investor on board. But I think it wasn't the demo, of course, that convinced them. It was the, the, the team in the background. So they decided to support us as an angel investment. It was a, a small ticket for us this compared to, to what we're aiming at this day. But that helped us to, to you know, hire full-time developers and start working on an MVP. So we went the classic, the classic route, you know, idea and concept, pitching it around, seeing how people react to it, then building a demo to, to raise the funding, and then with that funding, building an MVP. So with that minimum viable product, we then went to market and we saw we can, we're on the right track. We saw that the market was responding to what we had. They were willing to use it. We had people signing up, people starting to order projects in the app. So we were then able to raise an extension to the angel round and we were able to, to hire more people and start marketing and selling and, and build even like revenue already from scratch. So from almost from day one. So then we started improving on the platform, of course. And then last year, we raised our um, pre-seed round of 1.2 million euro, which was uh, kind of a big moment for us because then we could finally finalize version 1.0 or something like that and revamp most of the UI, rebuild a lot of the backend, just make sure that the product is actually scalable and can go places but at the same time like revamp our entire marketing and build uh, a solid team that is now able to scale this all the way to the next levels that we're aiming at so yeah until now it was you know it wasn't easy never is but it was uh, a lot of fun and a lot of work so i enjoy this kind of thing yeah it's always it's always fun to look back and it always like uh, as you're telling the story it always feels like such a straight line between point A and point B. But as you're going through it, it's like, okay, there was like, you know, ton of uncertainty. And, you know, I'm sure as you were going to raise funding, you weren't sure if that was going to, if that was going to materialize. And even as you were going for the initial customers, you're like, oh, well, it seems like there's some interest here, but I'm sure your, your belief in like the idea and the opportunity probably didn't waver, but it's kind of like everything else is almost out of your hands. So you're, you're, it really takes quite a quite a bit of faith to to make it through and actually, you know, like do what you did as far as like pitching investors and going through that whole process. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 you really need to believe in, in what you're building and that the solution you're providing to the market is actually necessary. Because a lot of times what I see out there, especially with younger startups, is that they are inventing a problem because they have a, 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 this idea that they came up with and there isn't really you know, a, an actual problem there. So the first thing you need to do is you have to find a problem that exists in the market and that hasn't been solved properly yet. And that so many times you will see all these startups with, you know, someone once put it well, I don't remember who it was, but someone once said, you, ha- you can split startups in two categories. You have the ones that you will be like, 
oh, well, that's, that's interesting. And the other ones where you react to them like, oh, well, that's cute, you know, because uh, they're, they're solving something that's not an actual problem. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you're going to get rejected. You're going to get rejected a lot. Like if, if uh, you're pitching to investors, you're going to get rejected by all sorts of reasons. Either they don't understand the product that you're building, which is very common, especially if it's a more complex product. Either you are unable to pitch it well, you're either your project product is just uh, you know it's not what anyone would want to support if they have some some grain of salt in their brain. A lot of times it's just that you're out of their league. Either you're you're you want for too much, or your ticket is too small, and they only get in with larger or more uh, developed companies. So yeah, get used to being rejected and get used to listen to the feedback that all these people you're pitching to give you. Sometimes it might be bad feedback, but a lot of times you can learn, you can adapt your pitch and you can adapt your project to to be more suitable for the next uh, investor that you meet. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done and it's a long and windy road usually. As I'm listening to that, it, it sort of, just makes me think of the one of the big struggles is that there's just sort of like infinite permutations, right? It's just like, well, what does your product do? And who are the people that it's for? And what problem are you solving? And how do you talk about your, you know, how do you, how do you talk about even for, for a product like yours of like, well, it's just like, are you trying to pitch this as like a faster solution to the traditional or like a higher quality one? Or is it both? Or is it, is there a specific scenario in which you're doing, you know, it's just like, I feel like that's like a real challenge of like, and I think you're, you're right. The only way that you can really gain that sort of insight is you have to both get it out there and talk to people, but you do also have to be receptive and listen to, if you're, you know, if you're pitching somebody and they say like, yeah, I don't really I really don't think this is a problem. Maybe you're not presenting it correctly, or maybe they're not your target customer, or maybe they're giving you the real hard feedback that what you're doing is not <laughs> is not you know you're you're not actually solving you know it's something that you you're sort of assuming is an issue for companies. I think what you what you learn as you get on the inside of businesses is that at any point in time there's always like a thousand things broken. So even if you are building a product that is addressing one of those thousand broken things, it doesn't mean that even if you are solving an actual issue, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a lot of motivation from the companies to actually solve that problem because it's like, okay, well, what you almost have to do is like, well, why should I solve this problem instead of these, you know, 25 other problems that are already on my to-do list? So it's a, it's a very challenging, very, very challenging stage to go through that you have to listen to people. Well, did you get like similar feedback as you were going through talking to initial customers and investors? Did you have to go through like that same process of figuring out which feedback to keep and which feedback to get rid of and, and what to modify from that? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's one of the, the the hardest things for us still now is to decide which way to, to you know, steer this boat, which way we want to go, because you get so much feedback back from the market and from the investors as well. And a lot of times it's good feedback and it's quality feedback, but uh, you know, you can't satisfy everyone. So, uh, you know, someone's going to say, oh yeah, I'd like this feature in the app. And, and uh, when you're a beginner, when you're just starting up, I remember we did this mistake a lot of times. We just drop everything we had planned and just go and build this feature just to satisfy this one customer, just in order to get them on board and, you know, grow the, grow the revenue. 
which is not necessarily the right approach, you know. And so figuring out your market fit, your product market fit is, is the mo- I think, the most challenging part of every company. Because even if you have a really good product that solves this cool, good problem, if you're marketing it to the wrong people because you are making assumptions of who your target audience, you are going the wrong way. So, what, for, for example, in our case, a lot of times we were convinced that because a lot of the business in localization is happening with larger uh, enterprise clients, that's our target client. But once you, I mean, it took us a while to realize that, first of all, the decision-making process, the, the acquisition times with enterprise is just so long, we would run out of our funding trying to acquire one of them, you know, let alone 100. On the, on the other, if you're, if you're doing B2B sales, right? But on the other hand, there's all of this, other companies that are much smaller that don't have so many localization needs, but are much faster to react and are also much more easy to convince because they're more used to using modern software, modern cloud-supported platforms, and not some sort of you know enterprise solutions from back in the day. So for us, it took us a while to figure it out, but it's it definitely. Uh, the thing you need to do and try, you just have to go out there and, and I wouldn't say pitch to everyone and try to sell to everyone. I would, I would approach it by, you know, uh, trying to making, try to make some assumptions and then make hypotheses about this saying, okay, this sort of company, this sort of decision maker is going to buy us because of this and that and try then to uh, form an experiment around your assumption about around your hypothesis run this experiment for a while, get some data back, and then make some decisions according to that data. And do do this, you know, rinse and repeat process with many different, you know, industries and uh, decision makers and whatever it is that you're aiming at. And then you probably get some representative data that's going to help you to decide where to focus your product and how to build it. I mean, there's so many stories out there of companies who are, who are building something and Eventually, they figure out they need to pivot entirely because they are getting so much traction from something completely different. So, yeah, I guess always be on the lookout and listen to what the market is saying. It's such a challenging decision. The, the, the example that you gave, if you have a customer and that customer has a feature request in the thought process that you were sort of talking through there of like, well, do we, do we satisfy that feature request or do, you know, not <laughs> say like, okay, well, that's like out of, out of scope. It's like, it's, it's, an, another good example of something that's like deceptively challenging to to do because what you what you had said after that is like you know just building all of the features that your customers request is not necessarily the right approach and then the thing i thought is like well it's also not necessarily the wrong approach <laughs> you know if like you know you can almost play it both ways of like yeah but your resources yeah. are limited you know you only have a handful of developers you only have this and that many months until you run out of runway and you you have to decide where your priorities are you can't just go and try to build everything that people in the market are but like but again still listen so maybe i, I put this the wrong way let's say you get a you have a hundred clients and one of your clients comes back and says, hey, I, I really love this feature. And instead of just dropping everything and going about building that feature, why don't you ask them more about their, their feature request and try to realize what problem they're trying to solve with that feature first, 
but then also try and ask some other users you have already in the app, let's say at least 20 of them, if this is something that they would use on a daily basis and if they would be willing to pay more for your product if it, if it provides them with this feature. And then maybe you're onto something. Otherwise, it might just be, you know, one person in one company wanting something because they came up with it, but they're not even going to use it. So, you know, with, with every single improvement that you're building into the app, always try to figure out, is it something that's going to satisfy 80% of our users instead of just 20? Is it something that's going to bring more value to our users and make our product or whatever we're building more valuable to them? And also, you know, go through the, the regular process of First, asking your your current users and your potential users, is this something that you want? Is this something that you would be willing to pay for? Uh, how much would you be willing to pay for this? And what kind of problem would this solve for you? And just always go through this process of first talking about it and then maybe designing it and showing it to people and asking them again, and then maybe dedicate your developer hours into actually building it. So it, uh, otherwise, you're just, you know, throwing money out the window. Yeah, for something that nobody is ever going to use. Yeah, sometimes it's just a whim from one client just saying, hey, I'll love this button here, you know. Well, are they ever going to use it actually? Probably not. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But yeah, probably, probably not, especially if it's just a button. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I, I love that. I love that framing that you have. I'm wondering, is there... Do you have like an example of a, a feature that you've either looked at implementing or decided not to implement based off of that, just to like wrap some like real world scenario around that, that thought process? Cause I think it's really important to drive that, that mentality home for people, especially if you're, you're starting a new product or you're kind of in the early stages of your business. I, I totally agree. This is like a critical thought process to, to go through. Yeah, I mean, I call this the scientific approach because basically what you do is you, you have a hypothesis, you build an experiment, you, you try to validate your hypothesis and, and then make decisions depending on that and then rinse and repeat. So it's the same thing that you would do in a laboratory. But what, what, what was a real, a real example from our case, as I mentioned, we, we started building this app that would help clients to, to order their translation services and be able to monitor their progress in real time and get their invoices and everything. So just try to simplify the whole process for everyday users who are trying to you know, get something translated and are not necessarily a localization expert and are not necessarily someone who does this on a daily basis, but they need like, you know, every now and then, like once a week or something. So we, we set out, we built that. And then when we were selling it, one of our uh, team members came back and he said, hey, um, why are we trying to sell this? Like a lot of the companies we talk to say that they're, build, that they're translating in-house, that they're, you know, they have their marketing assistants or their interns or sometimes the product manager or regional manager, someone who, who speaks the local language, who gets the files from, from their uh, headquarters or whatever, and they translate them in-house. And they always tell us that they don't need our services, whether it be machine translation services or human-in-the-loop translation services. Why don't we just give them the tools that our translators use and they can translate with those? And we're like, well, because then we wouldn't get to translate. But yeah, yeah no, we can sell them the software and they can use what we already built for our translators. So what we did is we, we started just asking everyone that we were selling to, so our 
sales team was in a lot of meetings and phone calls. And no matter what the response was from the potential or, or existing client, we always asked them, do they also translate in-house or are they thinking about it? And how are they actually doing it? And we had a, a, a list of, I think, about 50 companies who told us that they do it uh, in-house and that they also, uh, I think, about 99% of them weren't even using any, any software for that. So what what they usually do, imagine you're a, 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 a local regional manager for some, some multinational and they send you some files and you're responsible for getting those translated. So you have someone in your team just translating them on the fly. And how they do it is they open up the, the document that they have to translate. They open up a Word file and they copy paste between Google Translate or DeepL or some other machine translation solution and back into that Word file, and then they manually correct the file. And we realized, well, we can do this better. I mean, we can give you a tool that's going to help you translate much, much faster. Would you be willing to use it? So we started asking people, these people if they would be willing to do that. They said yes, and then we started showing them some you know, ideas, concepts, and they said, yeah, we would. And then we started building a demo. We gave them the demo for free. We said, well, you can use it for a couple of weeks and let us know what you think. We were doing a lot of customer interviews and onboarding and walking our users through the through the app to get them to use it. And, you know, just reminding them that it's there, even because, you know, a lot of times you sign up for a trial and then you just don't end up using it at all. So we were pushing them to, to get into the app and, and see if they get some value out of it. And in a few weeks' time, we realized, yeah, well, they, there, there is this need in the market. There's all of these translation tools that already exist are too complicated for everyday users. You need to be a localization expert to use them. Let's build something that's much simpler and anyone can use. Because these days, with the help of tools like Google Translate, basically everyone is translating. And they're just correcting the translation however they see fit. So we, we gave them the tools that help them do that about three to four times faster because they can drag and drop the file, edit it, edit the translation that's already automatically preset for them, and then just download the file and it keeps the exact same formatting. So it's really helps. It's really helpful. So we went through this whole classic process of, you know, experimenting and asking around before actually committing to building it. That's amazing. That's a really great example too, because the like the nature of that change is like was pretty fundamental like as like that as someone brought you that idea like probably the it almost sounds like what you're saying is like well the reason why we wouldn't do this is because we're a translation company <laughs> so right exactly if we if we're not doing the translations like what are we but yeah i think that's it's a really great you know intuitive response that you had there of like well yeah, maybe we aren't a, or maybe we're still a translation company, even if we're not the ones doing the translation. You know, it's almost like as long as translations are happening and and it's being managed, then you know maybe that's we're we're serving exactly in the in the way that that we we should be. Yeah. So the the story was we came into the translation business because of the need from the market. Our existing clients for language courses were asking us if we want to translate. We started translating, but you know, from the start, I always wanted to build a SaaS company. I was, I was always more curious into building technology that's going to provide value to people rather than providing services because it's just so much more scalable and you can, you know, help so many more people than you can with just this agency work. So I've always wanted to pivot out of the agency work and into SaaS, but 
building a SaaS company from scratch can be extremely expensive, especially these days when the market is already saturated with so many existing solutions that, you know, you have to be quite far into the development tree to be able to to build something that's brand new. And in order to be that far, you need to be very well funded or at least be a tech genius that, you know, is capable of doing this on their own in their own time. And no one else has done something like this before you. So there's a really high bar and this bar is just increasing, I think, in complexity of the solutions you need to provide to the market in order to provide it with value. Um, so for us, it was a very natural process. We went through you know, with the low-hanging fruit first and then improving on that and then improving on that again until we were finally able to fund the development and sort of pivot the company into more and more a SaaS business and less of a service industry. And we're still deep inside this transition as we speak. So it's a, it's an ongoing process and it's pretty complex. And it might not even be the right thing. We might we might be perfectly fine doing with a classical service industry and just, you know, live happily ever after. But if you want to build something grand that, you know, it's gonna leave a lasting effect, it's you're gonna to have to build hard and invest a lot. So this is where we're at. It sort of feels like once you've started your business predicated on solving a customer need, it's almost feels, although this might be simplifying it, it almost feels like it's easier to, as the needs of that market change or as you identify new needs, it's like it's almost like you're it's easier for you to move horizontally and 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 vertically to kind of solve these problems because the only reason why you were doing the first idea is because customers needed it. So if you, some other customer need shows up, it's in the same sort of domain of, of where you're already solving. It's like, well, sure. Like why, why wouldn't we solve it? You know, versus like you were mentioning the, the, oh, that's cute type ideas of like, someone's like so dead set on solving a specific problem in a specific way. It's like, well, then it's going to be really hard for you to look and, and, and have your eyes open and take in that feedback, you know, compared to somebody who, you know, if, if your whole if your whole mission is just to solve problems for customers, then as new problems come up or as you learn more, it's, it feels I'm, I'm sure it actually still is a challenging decision for you to make. And, and you do have to go through that process, like you mentioned, of talking to other customers and getting the sales team. You still need to get the feedback, but it, your, your initial reaction, because it's you're built into the nature of like, well, let's solve these problems for these customers is when a new problem came up, you're like, well, we could solve that for the customers too. Like let's, if there wasn't that, you know, kind of defensiveness of like, well, no, that's not who we are. And that's not, that's not what we do. That's not, you know, what we're all about. It's more like, well, let's get some more data. Let's see. Maybe we can help more customers this way. Exactly. If there's something, it's always get more data and then make your decisions based on comparable data that, that's uh, realistic and, and well, you know, well put together because a lot of times, People would just make decisions uh, based on one person saying one thing. It's, it's not necessarily the right thing to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge nerd when it comes to data-driven decisions. <laughs> yeah, I always keep my Excel spreadsheets ready to start figuring out what is it that we actually are facing, you know? Yeah, don't, don't talk to me unless you're bringing uh, an Excel spreadsheet. Type yeah, thing. Or, 
or, or at least the way how we can gather data for a few weeks and then you know decide on it. So yeah, this is this is really important. So yeah, when looking for new people to join your company, make sure that they that they are capable of working with data at least in the, the basic construct so they can understand what you're what you're thinking of. Let me know if this is kind of like outside the the realm of companies that you're working with or the problems that you're seeing. But I'm curious if you have any insight. One of the trends I've seen is like a lot of SaaS businesses are looking more to localization as their customers are becoming more international and as they're, you know, realizing that, you know, like we, Bear Metrics, we have a, an expansion in Japan and we're, we're fortunate that we have Japanese-based employees that can actually do the translations themselves, although they probably wish they weren't spending all their time doing translations. But, you know, we, we have at least have that capability is is that kind of localization like a a within SaaS? Is that something you have visibility on, or and do you have any sort of advice or feedback for companies that are maybe maybe thinking about expanding into a different region or a different language? Yeah, I mean it's exactly what we're what we're all about. So these days we're we're mainly working with SaaS companies, like really fast growing young companies who, let's say, about Series A or seed round, something like that, where they usually start thinking about localizing into other languages and for why why is this like our target market these days is because first of all we're we're tech heavy we're a SaaS company at heart we understand how they usually operate and we can help them you know translate their websites their uh, platforms all of their marketing content all of this other stuff so there's there's really so much different content that you need to get across from one language to another if you're opening up uh, localized in a new market. So it's not just the website, you know, there's internal internal documentation like SOPs and stuff. There's training uh, videos for your staff, whatever. There's just uh, legal content. There's, there's so many different things that you need to handle. And in, in traditional companies would usually have a localization team about, I don't know, 10 to even 30 or more people who, whose job it is to manage different vendors such as uh, language service providers or agencies. And they use all this traditional software that's usually, you know, local programs in their Windows machine. and They need to send files up and down by emails and so on. And it, it's really hard, to, you know, it, it's really hard for a startup to assemble a team like that and, and manage their localization process in this way. So what we're building is is a platform that anyone in your company can basically use. They just drag and drop their files in and they get them either translated by a professional, depending on the budget you have, or you just get them machine translated with your existing content and the machine translation engine on top of that that can learn from your existing content. Or your team members can come in, just like you said, your team in Japan, and they can use the tools that are very easy to use, but also very, very effective at translating content. And they can get the stuff translated. And it's all in the same platform. So it's really an all-encompassing, simple-to-use solution that runs in your browser. And anyone out there can just log in and start using it without any training or anything special required. So this is, this is actually what we're all about. You mentioned as far as also thinking about not just like updating the content on the on the website but also sort of all the supporting materials is that a is that a mistake that you see companies going in that when they're thinking about localizing their in their minds they're they're only thinking about 
is updating the copy on the marketing site. And they're they're not being mindful of like, well, all the other documents and internal documents and you know messaging and sales collateral, everything else that goes into an, a localization project? Yeah, so some like that. So a lot of times people wouldn't even consider localization as a cost until they start asking about it, you know. They they don't even budget for it and they're like, Oh yeah, we have all this traffic coming from Germany, let's say let's let's just translate our website into German, but then they forget, well there's you know, you need to get their terms and conditions, you need to get your your app, your platform also translated and that's not easy, you know. This is this is a process that you need to consider in advance be prepared for it. So what we try to do is reach out to, to SaaS companies. We try to inform them of the benefits of localizing, not just translating, but also, you know, be aware of cultural differences and, and all that. And then to help them set up a process through which they can then gradually translate and move over into other languages and reap the benefits of that. I mean, if you, there's so many blog posts on our website about uh, how how useful it is to actually localize. It's your fastest way to grow. Once you've built a SaaS company that's successful in one language, your easiest way to get new users and to grow faster horizontally is just to expand into other languages because most of the internet does not speak English, not anymore, not since the 90s. So yeah, things have changed a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit where, you know, yeah, that's certainly the case. What do you think is kind of like the minimum bar? So if we if we have a company, you know, or somebody's listening to this podcast and they're they're just starting a business, I would I would probably argue that like well, until you first start getting your first couple of customers, that's probably too early to localize. When do you think the right time is to start thinking about localization? And do you need to have a you know if you're going to localize into a different area, do you need to have someone who's a speaker of that language on your team? Can you actually outsource that? Like, like what have you seen kind of been the effective path to when to start localizing? And then what's kind of like the minimum you know, requirements to actually do it successfully? It depends on the, the company, of course, but I would recommend you don't get into localization. And I know I'm, I'm uh, you know, not, uh, not doing myself a favor here, but don't try to localize your content before you're sure that what you're doing is the right thing. So if you're, if you're still in the early stages of your business, it's very likely you're going to have to adapt your website entirely, like just revamp it from scratch every, every couple of weeks just to get the messaging right. But as soon as you're getting real traction and you're seeing that the market is, is interested in your product and the way you're communicating is actually the right way to get a lot of uh, traffic and conversions and all that we're all about here at this uh, this ecosystem of startups, then it's definitely the right time to at least start preparing for localization, if not seriously considering it. Because with a, a very low investment from scratch, you can you know at least get your website uh, ready for localization. Just your website, it doesn't have to be your entire platform and everything if, if, if it's just your marketing content you're already on a good track but but you can you can just get it translated machine translation wise and it's going to help you with your with your seo immediately like because you know seo is a very long tail long game effort and it's it, it makes sense to start doing it early on even if it's low quality just get it translated and you're going to get the you know traffic and you're going to get uh, all the 
ratings up and everything. And once you see if a certain language is actually generating some tracks, start properly translating things. So, for example, one of our um, common client types is an e-commerce company, and these have been exploding in the last couple of years, of course. With e-commerce, what we see a lot is that they would translate their entire list of products and descriptions and everything, initially just by machine translation. But for some of the products that they know are like best sellers, they're going to invest a bit more and have a human in the loop translation as well. And this can be either done by your team members or by our professional translators. We don't really care as long as you're happy with it, right? So once, if you're still a small company, you're probably going to outsource everything because it's cheaper than having your own team members doing it. I mean, we definitely can. We do it on a daily basis, right? We have hundreds of translators working for us. Some are even full-time in-house. Some of them are freelancers all over the world. And I bet you we can do it faster and for less than, than if you spend the time of your, of your, of your company team on doing that. They should focus on building the product, on marketing it, and, and supporting the clients, and not on translating content. But what we do like to do is we like to cooperate with these clients. You know, even before the first project, we would go and build a glossary out of their existing content and ask them, is this the way you want to translate this? Is this the words that are important to you? And so on. And then as we go along, we would build the so-called translation memory out of every project that you would translate with us, whether it be by our professional translators or by your in-house team, we're going to store all that content and help you help the system learn from that content so that the next time you come in, it's going to provide you with a better translation. So it really, it, it really is uh, advantageous to use a platform like this and not to do it just by hand because you're wasting precious human potential by repeating the same and the same thing all over again. The machine can do it much faster and can assist you with that, right? That's awesome. What's going on with your, with your company today? What do you have you know, in front of you if, you're, if you have plans that you're willing to share? Or kind of like, where's your, where's your head at as far as like what the next couple of uh, months and years are going to look like for you? Oh, the next couple of months are going to be um, all about raising the next uh, investment round. So we're we're just we just started now in, in the last month or two talking to a couple of VCs and and investors. So we're aiming on raising the next round of about three million euro, and it's looking quite promising. We have some serious VCs already going through the due diligence process. So we're we're hopeful, or quite optimistic that we're going to close this round and be able to to extend the runway for additional about uh, eighteen or. 20 months. And then in, during this period, we're going to invest more heavily into our SaaS capabilities. So we'll be able to support users with more technical solutions and pivot the company even more into the SaaS industry. But at the same time, it's quite possible that we will still be providing users with professional services as well, because what we see is that this hybrid is still, at least in localization, it's it's very necessary. So you might think that you know Google Translate already does a brilliant job, or some of these other empty solutions out there. They do. They, they're amazing solutions. But you don't want to trust your let's say terms and conditions for Japanese to Google Translate. You might get into some serious legal trouble down the road. That's going to cost you way more than just investing a couple, you know, ten bucks into getting that translated professionally. So it really is. Um, Something where we can see that 
with the, the you know with the rise of MT, translating huge volumes of content is cheaper than it has ever been. Just as I mentioned earlier, for example, product descriptions for building your SEO that's a great case. But it's not. It's uh, in some cases you you're always going to need, or at least for the next decade or two, you're still going to need a human in the loop to make sure that your translation is correct, so that they go through what the machine translates correct it and they improve on it and they make sure that it's you know legally correct and marketing wise correct and so on so your hero section on your homepage, you're probably going to want to have a human to translate that and not just the machine yeah that totally makes sense the the description on your hundredth most popular item can probably be done by a machine, but the I certainly agree your terms and conditions. You you really want to nail that. like the the specific wording is very important there, and, and like you said, it, it's not an extreme cost. So blending the blending the two together makes perfect sense to both get out there quickly. And I really do appreciate too your your thought around from an SEO perspective, getting something out there, even if it's not perfect, can help you start to almost go back to your strategy of of getting that data. And if you machine translate into five different languages and you see one of them is really starting to pick up in traffic, then that can be your indication that that might be the area to invest a little bit more in and, and kind of double down there versus, you know, spending the time to hand, you know, bespoke translate everything. And then, you know, then you're, you're kind of in that you're on the back foot. So that, that totally makes sense. And also, also fits in with your, with your strategy and, and like how you think about running businesses as well. Yeah, and then once you once you see you have traction in one market and you start investing into outsourced translations for professional needs, like your top 100 products, for example, your uh, terms and conditions, your hero sections on your home pages, and so on, you get those translated professionally. And then when you start generating more and more revenue in that market, you're probably going to start building a local team there. And once you have that team, they can use our the same platform, so again, the tile platform, to be able to translate by themselves as well, or at least to review what the other translators were doing, you know, and, and use the same ecosystem to progress the company further. And, you know, the best thing is that the more you work inside the system, the more it learns from your existing content, the more it's able to help you, the faster you get through and the better the results are. So the less human effort you have to put in. So that's basically the whole gist of the, of the tile platform. That's awesome. Well, hopefully anybody who's listening that is has been thinking about localization or has been putting it on, a, on the back burner or kind of doesn't really know where to start, hopefully they feel a little bit more motivated to, to grow their business and, and maybe it's not as uh, big as, and as intimidating as, as they, they might think. It shouldn't be. It's getting easier and easier, especially you know with solutions like what we're building. It's getting easier to to be multinational. You don't have to be a multinational company to be international these days. Yeah, awesome. So we will we'll include all of the important links and getting started. If anybody's interested in in checking Taya out, we'll make sure that I, it's actually a pretty easy domain, but we'll make sure that everybody's is linked over there. And hey, th- thanks so much for your for your time. This has been really great. It's definitely got the uh, wheel spinning for me. It's, it's to support some of our localization efforts. So I, I appreciate you letting me also use this time to to pick your brain on some of those some of those problems that I'm working on too.
Oh no, I'm happy to. It's it's my expertise, and and I like to I like to talk about this topic, as you can see. But yeah, if, if you have any questions, like anyone out there listening to this or yourself, right? Make sure to reach out. I'm I'm always available on LinkedIn or my email or somewhere, and I'm happy to help. So yeah, keep it up. Make your SaaS company grow fast, right? Awesome. Thanks so much. Cool. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. That was our conversation with Matija Kovac, the co-founder and head of development at Taya Translations. If you need a better way to translate your business's websites and documents, you know where to go. Taya.io. That's T-A-I-O dot I-O. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.